This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by Jeff Siegel of Early Birds Rights. He just put up a bunch of new rankings because the internet loves arguing about rankings, so people are upset with Jeff. Jeff, good evening. How are you? How are you handling uh, the internet uh, conglomerate latching on to your 2019 free agent point guard rankings? Uh, they're pretty nice so far. People have been a little bit confused on some of the positional designations, so I have to point them in the right direction of, the, okay. of an article okay. I wrote a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people are like, where is my favorite point guard X, who I don't think of as a point guard? Like Pat Beverly is more of a combo guard, so he'll be in the mm. combo rankings that'll come out on Friday. Um, and so a lot of people are just confused by that. I should have just released both of them together, like the point and the combo guards, just on the same day, so that everybody could be not freaking out about it. Or I could just rank those two positions sort of together, but I think of them differently. So I was going to rank them differently. People are going to get just as up in arms when I do the big men because I, str- I, I sort of divide the big men into stretch and anchor and the stretch big men are the guys who can sort of are more power forwards and they, they can sort of stretch their defensive game to the perimeter. It's not an offensive designation. It's all defense. Um, and the anchors are the guys who are in the paint and they play, they play mostly center. People are going to get up in arms about, you know, where is this guy on the stretch rankings? He's not a stretch, you know, big man to me. So it's, it's going to be uh, a little bit of a, a difficult situation, but people will have to uh, get used to it. Yeah, um, it's it, it. So I guess I have a question in regards to why you differentiate guards and bigs and stuff like that because of just how many, just how uh, everything has gotten so positionless. Why do you um, make it a note to kind of branch out between combo guards and everything else? Because you can make the case that I mean, Steph is and some just the best point guards in today's NBA are. Could probably consider combo guards right like harden curry all the the top guards are essentially combo guards Kimba can play off ball it's like i i guess that's my line of thinking of why why do you why do you still do that designation 
So I think for me, the biggest thing is that the position that you play. So I have, I have six positions, even though there's obviously only five can play at the same time. Um, I have six positions, point, combo, wing, forward, stretch, and anchor. Mm-hmm. All of those have nothing to do with how you play on offense. If you handle the ball as a primary ball handler, primary playmaker, that's your offensive role. And I have separate, like a separate designation for all the people who are primary playmakers, like LeBron James is a primary playmaker, but he's not a point guard. He's not a combo guard. He's a forward. And, you know, same thing with like Luka Doncic or Ben Simmons. You know, those guys are those that that's their offensive role. But the, on defense, they play forward or they play the wing or you know, Steph Curry guards point guards for the most part on the other team. Um, and so if he were a free agent this summer, he would probably be on the point guard or, you know, the point list that I, I just released. And so that's why a guy like Patrick Beverly or Corey Joseph, who are offensively, you would think of them as point guards. And that's why a lot of people are like, why isn't are these guys on this list? DeLon Wright was another person that people, you know, wanted to, to see on that list. If you, can defend both guard spots, you're more of a combo guard. And so I, I'm going to put you on the combo list. But what position you play for me has a lot more to do with who you can defend on the other end of the floor. And then what you do offensively is not as tied to what position you play because we see guys play the more positionless basketball. A lot of that positionless basketball has to come with or comes from the fact that lots of players can play lots of different roles and it's not necessarily the seven footers are down low and the six foot eight guys are shooting on the wings and the six foot one point guard is running the show. We're in a different world now where Nikola Jokic is seven foot one and he's running the show. And you know, Jamal Murray is more of an off ball player, but Jamal Murray is still a point guard, even though he's not like a traditional point guard. So that's sort of where I, uh, where I come from on the positional designations. That's interesting because I hadn't really considered that um, the defensive um, limitations of certain guys is kind of what pigeonholds them into certain roles um, and kind of your designations. I, I hadn't really thought of it that way because I think we all just think about combo players um, just from an offensive um, perspective, which I guess happens across all sports. We always are thinking about offense, 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 but um, your rationale as to why you make those designations based on who they can defend. That makes sense to me. Um, I like that. That makes sense. Um, so let's get into the finals. It's tied one, one, everybody's dead. And um, some guys might be rising from the dead. Shout out to KD, but an OG and an Obi, no disrespect, but um, has this series, Jeff gone, quite as you expected it would through two games i think so i mean i think it's something where you know coming in with durant injured and with the you know with the way to toronto play you know defended against milwaukee you would have expected them to you know put up a real fight against you know the best team in you know maybe basketball history but certainly in the last you know 15 years um you know i think it's it's something where we've seen we haven't seen an East team quite like this Toronto Raptors team because of how well they can defend. And they defended, you know, extremely well in game one. And then in game two for, uh, you know, a little bit, they did, you know, they defended particularly well in the half court for, you know, roughly the first half. And then the second half got away from them a little bit. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a huge surprise how it's happened or that it's happened that, that, that Toronto was able to, to take a game, but it was not, it's a little, I guess it's a little bit surprising that, that, 
Golden State was able to, you know, put together the performance they were able to put together without, you know, half their roster pretty much at this point. Yeah, and now Looney's gone. Do you it seems like there has been a lot of back and forth as to the impact of not having Kavon Looney for the rest of this series. Um is there anything in those minutes that he um will get filled, I assume, by just more boogie, but um his absence, what is that going to do to this uh Warriors team? I mean, it's it's like most absences. It's going to make them push further down into the rotation. Obviously, we saw you know we saw uh, Demarcus Cousins play a lot more minutes than they even wanted to play him. I think Kerr said after the game he was going to play, yeah, he was going to play Cousins up to twenty minutes, and he ended up playing like twenty eight because they didn't have Looney to come back into the game, and they they had to win that game essentially because the the stats of teams that are down two zero not particularly good. We just saw Toronto you know come all the way back, but the overall, you know, down 2-0 stuff is is not particularly enticing for for a team like even a team like Golden State to go down 2-0 is not great for for them. So, you know, they had to have that game. And so he played those extra eight minutes and and played particularly well. I thought, you know, I've I've really liked what I've seen from Boogie in both games. Um so I think it's it's really gonna be Jordan Bell. He's gonna be the one who's gonna have to step in. You know, I guess. We saw a little bit of Andrew Bogut. If they want to go back to Andrew Bogut, that's not where I would go with it because I don't think Andrew Bogut's particularly good. But they have a he's they have an understanding with him when he's out there. He knows where to be. He knows when to screen and roll. He knows when to screen and rescreen. He's a better passer than Bell. He's not as athletic. He's not as switchable on on, on defense. But he's got that sort of innate collective knowledge that the Warriors have amongst themselves. That's really you know, outside of Steph's like just unbelievable gravity and unbelievable shooting, their best team-wide attribute is how smart they all are. And Bell doesn't totally fit into that. Like he's a he's a good player and he's athletic and he can do some stuff, but he also makes some dumb mistakes that Bogut won't make because Bogut is smarter and just understands the the angles better and is just more you know sort of in their in their system. Even though he hasn't been there for for a little bit, he's really more he's more ingrained in what they like to do and so i think that's why kerr wants to go with bogan it's not the decision i would make i would go with bell but obviously i'm not steve kerr and he, the decisions that he's made have you know led him to this point and he's done particularly well with that decision making and so you know i think it's i think jordan bell should be the guy who gets that nod. I think Andrew Bogut will be the guy who gets the nod at first. And then if Bogut gets played off the floor athletically, that's when Bell would come in as, as the backup center behind Cousins. You know, they don't have enough, they don't have enough wing play to go with you know, Draymond Green at, uh, at center. They just haven't gone to a lot of that because they don't have the bodies around him without Durant in the, in the game. And so it's very difficult for them to go with Green at center for extended minutes because that leaves, you know, it, it just leaves, it leaves Boogie off the floor. And so it leaves another player who's, you know, in their top six or so guys off the floor. And it's just, it's too many guys who, who really can't, can't give them much. And so, you know, I don't foresee a ton of green at center, but I do think that they'll, you know, they're going to go with cousins at the starting in the starting lineup and it'll be, it'll probably be Bogut as the backup. And then it'll be bell if Bogut, you know, decides or, if, if Kerr decides the bogey uh, can't hack it. 
That's interesting because um, I, that, that's another thing I hadn't really considered as much as just the impact of not having KD and just being so thin on the wing. And um, even before KD, when they were going super small, they still had Harrison Barnes who they could count on not in to uh, make big shots in finals moments, obviously, but um, to just gobble up a lot of minutes. And um, they don't have him. They don't have McCall. They don't have Ian Clark. They don't have those um, rotation guys on the wing to, to withstand uh, Draymond playing a lot of five. Um, and now with KD out, not to gobble up all those minutes, you, you certainly can. And I hadn't even really considered that, um, being a big reason as to why you can't just go heavy with Draymond with Kevon Looney out is just, um, you, you just don't have the wing depth right now. And, um, you can't surrender Draymond losing a four, um, to put him at the five because there's just no other realistic options unless you want to play Jarebko a lot more, I guess, <laughs> but that yeah, does I mean, not it's... seem like a good idea. Yeah, it's not good for, for, for them to go with Draymond at center because they don't have the rest of the guys around him, you know, that, and they, that's what makes that lineup so good is that all five of those guys are smart and can right. score and can do everything that they need them to do. But it, right now with Durant out, and even if everybody else were, were healthy, their best lineup is not at, with Draymond at center because they don't have that additional wing and Boogie slides in as the fifth guy and they, they play a different style, but it works. You know, especially if Boogie sort of is engaged and is playing with the sort of energy that we saw in game two, he can he can he can play that role, even though it's a very different kind of role than obviously than like Kevin Durant plays when he's in that lineup. So but if he's out, then it's, you know, it's Jarebko, it's Quinn Cook, it's Sean Livingston, like those guys are significant downgrades over, you know, over a guy like Boogie Cousins. And so if you are thinking about like what are the advantages that they get from going with Draymond at center are those advantages outweighed by the disadvantages of having to play a Quinn Cook a you know Sean Livingston a Jonas Jerebko probably because those guys aren't that good they have one or two skills that make them you know usable rotation players but all of their deficiencies you know take so much off the table that getting the extra boost of having green at center is not as useful so then they go back to boogie they obviously had Kevon Looney as well, as well as a backup center who's very good and is you know one of the the better backup centers out there, especially the way he plays within the Warriors system as well. And then you know they have Bell and they have Bogut if they if they need to go that route. So you know I think it just they haven't gone to a lot of green at center over the last you know handful of games since since Durant went out, and it sort of makes sense because they just don't have the wing depth to uh, to pull it off. Yeah, um, it's an interesting conundrum that uh, Steve Kerr finds himself in right now. Um, let's say uh, at the end of, like after Iguodala hits the shot in game two and his Achilles just explodes off, like into a billion pieces and you don't have Andre Iguodala for the rest of the series, but you do have Kevin Durant, he's healthy and they say KD is ready to go and he can play for the remainder of the series. Or Iguodala is fine and KD is out for the remainder of the series and we just never see him at all. Who do you think in this series in particular, this offense would, or not even just this offense, this team, do you think they would struggle more with not having Iguodala for the entire series or Kevin Durant for the entire series? I mean, that seems like not a very, I mean, that feels like a total no brainer. Like I think Durant is clearly the better player there and would clearly help them way more than, than Andre has. I mean, obviously Andre is a very good player, but and Andres does a very good job against Kawhi Leonard in particular, right. but they, the offense is so much worse with Andre out there because of the the fact that they don't have to guard him, yeah. and and they're not guarding him, and they're they're letting whoever's guarding him roam off of 
off of guys. And I mean, there was a reason that Andre was so incredibly open to, to, to hit that shot. And he's been open all series and they're going to continue to leave him open because he can't shoot. And he's not really a, you know, a, a threat to even drive and finish because Gasol is going to be there at the rim to, to take that away. So, you know, having Durant back out there, even if Durant is whatever, 80% of the defender that Andre Iguodala is like, he's not, a, he's not a perfect matchup for Kawhi Leonard because, you know, KD does have some issues like getting through screens, uh, both on and off ball that it would make them a little bit more switchy, which would get Curry more involved. And like, there would be some issues there, but Durant's overwhelming offensive value would just totally, totally thwart anything that, uh, any extra advantage that they would have from having Andre out there. So I think, you know, I, I think it feels like a no brainer to me that I would rather have a fully healthy KD for the rest of this series than a fully healthy Andre. But, you know, in real life, then they're, they're sort of dealing with both guys being relatively hobbled. And then obviously Durant hasn't played in whatever it's been like almost a month, six weeks, something like that. So yeah. it's been a long time since we've seen Durant. It, you know, continues to be one of those things with a calf that you never know how, you know, how long those things are going to last. It was supposed to be a two week injury and now it's been like four or five, you know, it's just the way, you know, it's the way these, these lower body muscle things go. And that's, you know, obviously why a lot of people are really worried about Clay Thompson because he suffered not a calf strain, but the hamstring, it's all similar in terms of, you know, the, the back of the leg can be very just difficult to, of course. Yeah. Chris Paul comes back a little bit, maybe earlier than he might've might maybe should have. And he re, you know, re-injures the hamstring and, and they go out last year. And so, you know, it's, you know, the, the back of the lower leg with the calf and the Achilles and the hamstring, like you just really cannot mess with those things. And if, if you have an injury and you come back too early, the, the prospect of re-injuring and really, really hurting yourself is, is just so high. And, you know, for a guy like Clay going into free agency, for a guy like Durant going into free agency, like you don't want to, you don't want to mess with those things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it's this is a good transition into what I was going to ask you about Kawhi because I think that's the new uh, conspiracy theory. Everybody's going back and forth on it. I was reading different pieces on this and just like you said, um, just the the lower body and behind the leg and all that kind of stuff of just how um, how just in careful you have to be with this stuff um and also like how all these gms and coaches just have to be like oh god oh god like whenever they're on the court because you you kind of play through it and you're just kind of trusting your body and you feel like you can go more and then sometimes like it's just weird unless you've had like a messed up hamstring or calf it's hard to explain but Kawhi, it seems like people assume because of his knee stuff because they like i was listening to windhorse today and he was like it seems like it's both of his legs it's like his knee and his groin and then you read the piece where it's like because his groin is still kind of messed up, he's putting more um pre like more uh strain on that messed up groin leg or the other leg or whatever, and that knee is now just getting hobbled because of his weird um equilibrium um in the way he's running and walking. Is that something you've seen? Is that uh, a really is is that a good way of explaining what's going on with his knee and groin and how they're connected and how that's affecting um his just his play so far? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good way to explain it. We've seen that with other injuries throughout the year, not throughout the year, but throughout sort of NBA history where you, you know, when you injure one one leg, it'll change your gait. It'll change how you run. It changes how you walk. It changes how you slide defensively. Every, every movement changes just a little bit. 
And then you sort of overcompensate and try to use the other leg a little bit more or just a little bit differently. And then that leg gets injured. And then you, you know, you're, you're so you almost sort of revert back to normal in a way because now both legs hurt. And so you're just, you try to get back to sort of your normal gait and just knowing that stepping with either foot is going to hurt. And so, you know, I think that's a little bit of what, what Leonard is going through and what he's, you know, going to try to, you know, he's been unable to sprint really like full out sprint forward for like the last, whatever, six, seven games already, you know, since, since he heard it against Milwaukee, he's really just been, you know, subsisting on these smaller movements that are working for him. He can go laterally pretty, you know, very, very well. He can go in short bursts. He can get to, to where he needs to go. But when you see him really try to take off and transition in, in particular and get to top speed, he just can't get there right now, which is, you know, I think that's, that's the biggest thing that I've noticed with him is that there he, he slows down their transition attack because he literally just cannot do it. But once he gets into the half court on both ends, he's, uh, I think he's been, you know, relatively fine. And it seems like this is one of those other things that's just not going to get corrected mid series. So we'll just have to see how that goes. Um, it seems like there was a huge overreaction to Pascal Siakam's game two. I didn't think he was all that bad. Um, obviously he didn't shoot as well as he did in game one. Um, what did you see in, uh, the difference between Pascal's play in game one and game two? I mean, in game one, he just got out and transitioned so much and was able to, you know, he made some shots that he's not going to make in most games. I mean, like in, in game one, like he had that running hook that was like over the back of his head, basically. And he, and it went in and like, he, he made some shots in that game one that were not like, these are not the shots that he can hit on a daily basis on a game, you know, game by game basis. So it's not something that that's not the baseline. The baseline is cl- a little bit closer to where game two was, where he's, he was fine. I thought he, he, you know, was, didn't have the type of offensive success because, you know, Golden State was so much better getting back in transition and because they were, you know, loading, loading toward him a little bit better defensively and not just leaving, leaving Draymond Green even just on an island against him. Like they were bringing help. They were, you know, pushing him toward passing rather than shooting. And it's just sort of, and then when the, the, the first couple of, uh, of jump shots didn't go down, they didn't have to sort of guard him out there. He got a little hesitant on taking some of those jumpers and it just sort of snowballed into what was not as effective of a game. But that's what you get from a guy who's not like one of these, you know, top, you know, maybe 20 superstars in, in the league right now. Like he's sort of on that borderline between 20 and 30 as sort of a, a, a really high level you know, player, a really high level role player who is sort of, you know, maybe not the, not the type of star who can play through things that when things aren't going well, but is sort of in that next tier where when things are going well, he's almost unstoppable, but there are going to be nights where he's just doesn't have it going and, and he can't sort of summon that level of offensive production, you know, but I thought, you know, on the balance of the two games, he's played very well. And so I think, you know, in aggregate, he's played well. It just happened to be that he played extremely well in one game and not so well in the other game. And so, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't look too much into it. I don't think that game two is some sort of, you know, they, they've solved Pascal Siakam and that they, he's, he's not going to be effective in the rest of the series. You know, I think he, he and the coaching staff will come together and they'll find some counters. They'll find some ways to get him open and they'll find some ways to sort of get him going. 
And I, I think the biggest thing for him is, is still the jump shot. If the jump shot goes down, if the first three goes down, if the first couple of threes go down, especially above the break, that brings the defense out toward him, and then he can jet past them. And, and that's what he got going in game one that he didn't really get in game two. And so, you know, I, I think he's fine. It's just uh, It just wasn't quite as good as game one, but it's nothing to overreact to. So we talked about this a little bit, but DeMarcus obviously starting and it seemed like this is a kind of the flip side of the Pascal game where he had the game one that he got all the hoopla and then game two it was all about Cousins and his emergence. But um, for me, I, I don't know. I didn't feel like he was such a force like Pascal was in game one. I, I thought Pascal's game one was a lot more dominant and um, impressive and also just kind of sustainable than what Boogie did in game two. Um and also, like, I, I don't know, like, the Gasol factor is interesting because of just how good Gasol has been defensively in the playoffs and just what he did with Embiid and um, just uh, the the wall against Giannis and just, uh, I, I don't know, I think, and obviously just destroying Nikola Vucevic, but um, what this is a two-parter, I guess. One, was Boogie's game really that good in those minutes? or And also, can Gasol adjust and really shut him down? in the rest of the series. I mean, I think cousins was particularly good in game two. And it was like, this was the the sort of cousins that we thought we were going to get from him before he injured his quad. And right after he had sort of come all the way back from the, the Achilles injury or not all the way back, but as back as he was in those first couple of games against, uh, against the Clippers. And then of course he got hurt and, and things went awry. This was the sort of this was the cousins that we thought we were going to get somebody who they could throw the ball to at the elbows and in the post and he can make plays either for himself or for his teammates and then defensively you just sort of hope he can keep up as well as he has over these last couple of games you know he's the de- the defense has been something where he can do the first thing you ask him to do and then the second thing you ask him to do he's not going to be able to do that and so the defense is exactly sort of what we expected it to be. It's not high level. It's not very good. He's probably the one of the, the worst defenders on the floor at any given time, you know, in, in terms, especially in terms of impact, given how, how much a, a center can impact defense versus like a point guard. Um, he can handle an initial pick and roll. If you let him get set and you run a pick and roll at him, he's going to be in position. He's got quick hands. He can, he can make life difficult. But if you then pull the ball out or send it to a second side and then run another pick and roll at him. And he's trying to adjust and, and adjust his positioning and get, you know, get in line for that. He is going to, he's probably going to mess that one up because he's just not, he's not able to defend the second action that you throw at him. So, you know, but I think those things are, are something that you would have to expect from him given, you know, what, what he's shown over the course of his entire career. And so I'm not sure I thought his his game two was particularly good. I thought he defended those first actions well well enough to to do you know to do his job. And obviously the second actions gave him a little bit of of issues. And then he went and played very well offensively. And on you know on the offensive end he was you know diamond people up. He was getting his own offense. He was doing you know giving giving Gasol a little bit of fits on that end. But it's not. I don't think that Gasol is charged with stopping DeMarcus Cousins. Like, I don't think that's his job. I think it's really on the rest of the Raptors as a, as a unit to help make Cousins a scorer rather than a passer, 
when mm. he's able to operate from the elbows and hit Clay Thompson on back doors and hit Steph Curry coming off screens, like that's not on Gasol. The fact that Curry, the fact that Thompson is getting these backdoor layups, you yeah. know, two the layups three, are a problem in game two. Yeah, and like that's not on Marcus Gasol. Marcus Gasol has to, to to guard the guy he's guarding, and he mm. can't drop back you know, two steps off of, of Cousins because Cousins can hit that free throw line jumper, that elbow jumper. So obviously you have to play him. And so that's part of what makes Cousins really good is that he can hit that jumper and he can hit that backdoor pass. And he's a very good passer. And, you know, I think that's, I mean, frankly, on this Warriors team, his passing is his best skill. And so, you know, it's up to the rest of the Raptors as a unit to take away those easy passes, to make life difficult on the cutters and, and make Cousins into more of a scorer where if he's trying to go up against Marcus All, that's not going to work super well. We've seen that against Embiid, Vucevic, Brooke Lopez, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like we've seen Marcus All be very good at shutting down a one, in one-on-one defense. But when that guy's able to to hit backdoor, you know, backdoor cutters and and hit Steph Curry off screens, like that's not on Gasol. So I think Gasol's doing his job. I think if they tighten up a little bit of their off-ball defense against, you know, especially Thompson and Curry that they can make Cousins into more of a score. They can frustrate him into trying to go at Gasol over and over. And then, you know, that'll really take the Warriors out of the sort of beautiful game that they like to play. And that'll, you know, really raise Gasol's defensive value, of course. Are there any numbers that you've come across um, just going through uh, stats NBA or um, whatever your preference is? Have you, have you encountered anything in the series numbers wise that is, has kind of stood out to you? Like, Oh, Oh damn. Nothing that really comes to mind right off the bat. Uh, you know, I think it's it's the, it's such a tight series both ways that there's nothing to me that I've come across at least so far that has been like, oh, this is a defining characteristic of this series. Obviously, we're only two games in, and it's going to be a small sample size. Even if we get seven games, or it's going to be a small sample size, so it's hard to you know really look at uh, a set of numbers from either two games or seven games and say, okay, this is an absolute truth about you know this the 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 matchup between these two teams that's you know sort of part of the fun and part of the problem of the playoffs is that when you only get these seven game samples it becomes difficult to suss out like which numbers matter and which numbers don't and so you know that's where that's where things you know sometimes go awry if you're just relying on numbers for you know for your playoff coverage and for your playoff you know analysis you really do have to just go back and watch the, watch the games and see sort of what the coaches are doing. You know, I think, you know, the the numbers are not something that I, I look at as much during the, during the playoffs. I, I really obsess over them during the regular season because the, the aggregate of how teams play and how they do against certain other teams, you can see how that works over an 82 game schedule, but in a seven game series where everything, every minute is tightly contested and every minute is, is planned for, it's I don't I don't find them as useful as I do going back and really watching the video, watching the coaches adjustments, watching the rotations in particular, and really, you know, locking in on those things in the in the playoffs. How does the rest of this series go for you? The rest of the series is going to be very interesting. There's going to be lots of offense and lots of defense, and I am just along for the ride and I hope we get seven games out of it. And I don't have uh, a particular prediction at this point because it's so it's so injury based and it's so difficult to say 
you know, when Durant is going to come back, what he's going to look like when he comes back, whether Clay Thompson is able to play in game three, whether he re-injures that hamstring and has to go out, you know, how Andre Iguodala looks, whatever. I mean, like all of those things are so unknown at this point that saying, you know, I, I'm going to take the Warriors in six is like, but you don't know who the Warriors are going to be in game four of a game five and game six. You don't even know who they're going to be in game three. So it's very hard to sort of sit here and, and say, you know, I, I, I don't have a good feel for the series is basically what I'm saying. I don't know because I don't know who's going to be out there. Like, I feel like after two games of most series, you know a little bit of like what the series might look like going forward. But because their personnel is going to change so much over the next, you know, between three and five games, like there's no real way to know what uh, no real, no real way for me to predict what what might happen. Yeah, that part sucks. It it seems like it's such a cliche that like, oh, it, it's going to come down to injuries and like the least injured team wins and all that stuff. But it, it just every year it seems to ring true of just health. Um, uh, What is it? Ben Golliver always said, like he says, basically the 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 best of it. What is it? Something about the best availability is availability or something like that. It's, it's yeah, your that. best your best quality is availability or right, something, something like, like that. that. Like your best the best quality about a player can be if you're just available to play all 82 games or you know all 16 games of a playoff run or whatever however many games you need to to win a championship i think those the best you know the the best players are available all the time and are are able to play you know 40 45 minutes a night and i think that's a big part of what Kawhi leonard is is proving in these playoffs that people may be questioned about him after the nine game season where he had with San Antonio where you know even the Spurs were like we don't know what's wrong with you why aren't you playing and a lot of fans sort of turned their back on him and thought like okay he's just you know quitting on them but then you see him come out here with multiple lower body injuries and he's just killing it playing 42 minutes a night and so you know it's hard to to predict the rest of the series but you know it's the way we have to do it yeah I think Raptors in seven. I'm sticking to my guns, but uh, we'll have to see. And KD, obviously, his his return is going to be a big part of all of this. But we'll see. It's going to be fun. I'm like you. I have a good seven games. Um, speaking of great players, just players that we both love, D'Angelo Russell. Um, getting a lot of free agent love already. He's not. Even, we're not there yet. But you see the the Jazz, the Wolves, uh, just certain teams the magic um which i don't know why the magic would uh want somebody like d'angelo russell when you have just future superstar point guard markel fultz just wait in the wings uh what's the need for somebody like russell if fultz is going to be ready to go next year and you want to hand the reins over to him as the the new lead ball handler and uh in orlando and take the reins from dj augustine um but um jeff as as you i think well that you know quite well is uh my prediction that uh markel fultz never plays basketball ever again but we'll see we'll we'll see what happens there um what do you like who should really be pursuing d'angelo russell because i don't love the utah thing at all i don't want him and donovan mitchell in the backcourt together that just i don't like that fit it it, there's just something about it that concerns me i don't know that might get too blazery for me and i don't think you like the blazers are a fun story but i don't think you want to go down that road too much um, I don't know. Like, I don't know where the right place is for him. But then again, do you do you think that the Nets should give him the max? Do you think any of these teams who are rumored to be interested in him? Um, because it seems like no matter who it is that gets him, they're going to have to max him out. Um, what what do you think about D'Angelo Russell right now? I mean, certainly, if you have to max him out, then you should be doing literally anything but that. 
Like but you should not happen. Be... That's not realistic, right? He's getting the max from somebody. I can't imagine that he's going to get $27 million from anybody. Like if he gets 18, that'd be fine. That's probably more than I would love to. Like I, I wouldn't love that deal. If you give him four years, $80 million and it's, you know, roughly 18, you know, it rises from 18 to about 22 million a year. That's not fantastic. I don't love that contract, but it's not uh, an abomination. If you give him, you know, four years starting at 27 million, like that's, immediately one of the worst contracts in the league it's not andrew wiggins because nobody's andrew wiggins but like that's a that's a really bad deal for for him and so i don't think i don't think he's going to get maxed out i don't think that uh that there's anybody out there that's going to get that who who wants him that badly that they're going to max him out you know i think that the fact that he performed at the way he did in the playoffs and was clearly their second best point guard behind spencer dinwiddie that that showed teams a lot of like what he can and cannot do. And the fact that he can't be your primary playmaker in the playoffs because of his lack of uh, vision, because of the, the lack of finishing at the rim, because of his lack of defense, he can't be a, a high level player in the playoffs. And so those are the guys you want to max out are the, the point guards who can do those things at, at a playoff level. And he showed that he can't do that. So he's not the sort of, max guy that you want on your team and so i i would be very surprised if he if he ended up getting that you know that mega deal the the mega you know 27 million a year kind of contract from anybody i think he's going to get it from somebody these teams like the the teams that are interested are going to be desperate um maybe not the jazz but the wolves um their backcourt situation very bad uh, but then again just can you imagine them paying uh delo even close to the max along with wiggins just uh oh my god um i mean i heard from a wolves person this morning actually and they were sort of i mean it's not somebody who works for the team just somebody who covers the team and is you know sort of working on a a piece around that and he was he had heard from people in the organization that four for 80 made a little bit more sense for them and was sort of what they were that was the sort of baseline that they were working off of. That's why I mentioned but it that's earlier. Was, so much money for D'Lo and Andrew Wiggins. That's so much money to yeah, these two guys. It's a lot of money and it's a lot of money for, for them and Towns, of course, who's going to be, you know, on a, on a big deal as well. And so like, you know, it's, that's a lot of money, but you, you can see how, I mean, the, the Wiggins thing is shot, right? Like it's done. He's not going to be good. Like it's not, we're not talking about with Andrew Wiggins. It's hard. You, you can't He's even miss the jump window. It's been too long. It's been too long. It's not even, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who believes in veteran development and that guys can come on late and that guys can learn new skills when they're 28, 29, 30 years they old. Can't be, they don't become, become superstars. Probably not. I mean, it, it happens from time to time, very rarely, but it's, if we know anything about Andrew Wiggins, it's that he doesn't have the sort of work ethic that it takes to, become a superstar or become a star or become a starter level player or even be good at all. So like it's Jesus. sort of, yeah, man, I, so Maple Jordan having, just getting, Oh, all kinds of shots fired by Jeff tonight, man. I was, I was talking about this with somebody that it's, so you, we have sort of in general basketball talk, we have the Nene test, which is something I think that was coined by Danny LaRue, which is basically like, does a player, a player's on-court value minus his contract that you have to pay him. Is that a positive 
asset or a negative asset in terms of trades, in terms of, you know, whether you want that guy on, on your team. It's something that we were just sort of talking about with D'Angelo Russell. Is it a positive contract if he's on, you know, 20 million a year? Probably not, but it's not as bad as obviously if he's on 27 million. But if you could get him on 15 million, that's probably a pretty good deal. Andrew Wiggins is not. So we're not even talking about that with Andrew Wiggins. Obviously, he makes so much money that there's no way he'll ever pass the Nene test. We're, we should be talking the, – the conversation around Andrew Wiggins is not, is this guy minus his contract a positive player for you on a basketball court? It shouldn't even be – we can't even talk about the contract because the contract is so bad that it doesn't even matter. Is Andrew Wiggins right now a positive basketball player compared to a minimum guy that you could just find in the G League? Is he better? Is he absolutely an above replacement level small forward? I'm. I honestly don't. I'm not sure that he is. Like I think he's. It doesn't he help were that this agent, is a really strong that like wing grouping in today's NBA. Like there's just so many yeah, I mean, guys like that that you can just get that are, and especially in the G League, like the Josh Richardson types. Like we would, I think everybody would much rather have Josh Richardson than oh, of course Andrew Riggins, and it's just like, um. I don't know. Like this will be year seven. I want to say for Wiggins. Um, yeah, year maybe six, six year or seven. Six. I mean, it's it's his numbers have gotten worse. Like his best yeah, year was like three he's years not, ago. He hasn't. Yeah, he hasn't improved at he's all. He's going the wrong way. <laughs> he's going the wrong direction. Like he's not. There are guys. There are players who have not been drafted yet who will be drafted in a few weeks who are already right now without contracts without anything better. Just better NBA basketball players than Andrew Wiggins is. Like not just Zion, but like there are multiple guys in a in a draft that is not very good who are just in a vacuum right now, probably better than Andrew Wiggins. And it's just can like, I tell you where he so should go? Not... Wiggins only one I mean, spot. Should... Yes, oh, I know you yeah, want to I mean, say like boot him into the sun, but um... yeah, I mean you could send him to to Shanghai. Like that would he'd be great in China. He would he's just be- dominate he's in China. He's Michael Beasley already. Like people don't see he's, him as Michael Beasley yet, but that's who he is. Like that top two pick where you're like, oh, there's he has all the skills and he should be great. He should do all this stuff. And then you're like, oh, it's year eight and he's still not doing that. Oh, there he is in China. Like that seems like the trajectory it's going to be. Like you said, he's eventually going to wind up there because the game's changed and teams are just going to move on once that contract's over. I, I just don't see him getting the kind of money that he wants. Um, But no, if KD leaves, what if they just absorbed <laughs> Wiggins contract and he became their Harrison Barnes? I, I actually would love Andrew Wiggins as the KD replacement in uh in Golden State because I mean if would... anybody could sort of wake him up and make right. him into something more than he is as a passer as a as a just a, a smart basketball player if that's still in there somewhere like I guess it's possible I would there's do no it. if KD there's gone, no way that they can afford it like just financially yeah. like it's just never going to happen yeah. but if the, if you could just throw him over there on a minimum contract he probably would be a decent option for them in, in that regard. Like he, they could at least take a chance on him. And I think that's, what's going to happen when he, you know, when he finishes this contract, it's not going to be something where he's just immediately out of the league. There's going to be a couple years where people are like, Oh, like we're going to talk ourselves into Andrew Wiggins on the minimum contract, you know, like Michael Beasley, you know, he hung around on a minimum, not even a minimum. He, he made like $4 million last year uh, with the, with the Lakers. And like, frankly, was probably a better player in in his minutes than Andrew Wiggins was in his minutes. And, you know, like, I think they're, I think he'll, he'll hang around a little bit longer, but, you know, he won't be around much, you know, too much longer, especially as a, you know, high level player. 
So if you had to rank who you'd be most comfortable paying with what they're probably going to command this summer, how would you rank these three? Russell, Kimba, Malcolm Brogdon. Um, Malcolm Brogdon would be the first first name on that list because I don't think... He would be number one, number one too, but I think most people would have him at number three, right? I mean, I, I think now that Kemba has made All-NBA and it seems kind of fait accompli that they're going to pay him $221 million over five years, like that contract is immediately not a very good contract. Like that's right. immediately a negative contract. And with Russell, there's so much sort of buzz around him and, and you know, Obviously, you think he's going to get maxed out. I think he's going to get something more in the the twenty million dollar range. Even if he gets, say, he gets something in the twenty million dollar range, like that's also probably a little bit more than than you would like to give a guy like that. You know, I, it's it's not something that I would necessarily be super comfortable giving him. But like Brogdon, if he gets if he got sixty million dollars over four years, that'd probably also be a slight overpay, but. I, I I just I think his value on that contract gets a little bit better even if he's even if he's not a great regular season player because you know that you can rely on him in the playoffs both on offense and on defense that like I think that that makes him a not a better overall player than those guys but a better value on whatever contract he's going to get this summer. That's fair. Um, one of the last things I want to touch on here: um, LeBron, Palinka. We saw the LeBron with. Uh, Frank Vogel picture today. So they're, they're best friends now. And then we also saw Jason Kidd, highest paid assistant in uh, basketball. So well-deserved there, Lakers. Um, great work. Not giving Ty Lue those extra two years of money and then um, giving Jason Kidd all of the assistant head coach money. Just um, very interesting way of doing business. Um, if you were in their shoes, who would you target this summer? Because like listening to Bill Plaschke on Dan Patrick this week uh, talk about how if – they strike out this summer and they don't trade for anybody. They don't sign anybody that LeBron might ask out. And that's enough for them to just be like, Oh, we're, we're, we're out of here. Um, we can't waste any more time with this, all that kind of stuff. How would you target this summer if you were LeBron and company? Because I don't know if I'm on the same page as you on this front, but I, my priority number one would be like, all right, so we're, uh, we're going to get Kemba. That'd be my priority. Number one, just get Kemba. Cause I think he really is like the perfect point guard for lebron at this stage in his career and that they're on the same timeline all that kind of stuff i would i would start there and then be like all right we're getting kevin love we're getting the gang back together kind of and then we're gonna just do a a poor man's version of what we did in uh cleveland and do whatever we can to talk jj reddick into a huge one-year deal but um that's what i would do and also looking at their cap it's insane to me that lebron is their only guy right now that is on a multi-year deal that's making a lot of money all their young guys still very cheap deals. And then they had just all these one-year contracts. So they don't even have a lot of tradable assets because they don't have a lot of tradable contracts. Like it's a very weird situation there where it's like they don't have a lot of... I feel like the Celtics were in this situation a couple of years ago, I want to say, um, where they couldn't do certain deals because it's like, I don't know if you've seen their roster because they have a bunch of uh, rookies on small contracts and then they have a couple guys on max level contracts and they have no middle ground. So you can, it's harder to do deals with teams that have no middle of the road contracts to make the money work. Um, I don't know. I just threw a lot at you, but that... I, I just think it's fascinating their dilemma and how they're going to go about trading for somebody and also signing people uh, this summer. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the Lakers did that all those one year contracts last year. Like that, this that was all on purpose because they wanted to get back into the free agent market this year. And so doing that eliminates all those guys off of their books, and then they can go out with like thirty million dollars in cap space roughly, and and try to try to sign somebody. That's you know not they don't have enough money at this point right now to to nail down a guy like Kemba or Kyrie unless they're gonna, those guys are going to take a very slight break. I mean, we're talking like. $200,000 off the max. Like, so they can probably get that done if they needed to. But right now, technically, they're a little bit short of, of, a, of a full max contract for one of those guys. And then, you know, then they've got to figure out whether they can make a, an Anthony Davis trade. You know, I think that's their big, that's one of their big superstar, you know, signings this summer in, in a way. Like, I think they, I think for them, it would make the most sense if I, if I knew I was going to get Davis then they can do some different things in terms of filling out the rest of the roster with role players that make sense around James and around Davis. It's just really hard to know, you know, what, what the Davis situation is going to look like and what kind of players that they want to sign, because if they go out and sign, you know, a higher paid big man, then the Davis thing doesn't, doesn't work as well, or it doesn't make as much sense, or they just have so few role players after that because if they trade the house for davis and spend all their cap space on one guy then they've got a three-player team and they've got a bunch of minimum contracts after that and so you know then you run into like the 2011 heat situation where it was just the three big guys at the top and a bunch of minimums and it didn't you know didn't work out for them until they were able to to flesh out the roster a little bit more the next year and so i think it's you know i think it's it's something where they're their free agency is going to be informed by the Davis trade and by how how that works out or doesn't work out for them. And I think until then, it's hard for them to, you know, really make a, a full fledged plan. They're going to go after every big fish in the sea. They're going to go after Kemba. They're going to go after Kyrie. They're going to go after Jimmy. They're going to go after Kawhi Leonard and and Kevin Durant even Clay Thompson. Like all of those people are on their shopping list, and they're going to try to to go out and and sign one of those guys, but. You know, it's going to be hard to it's going to be hard to do that because those players don't know who's going to be around. So you can't pitch them on, you know, come play with our great young core because the young core might be gone. So who knows about that? And then, you know, whether guys want to play with LeBron is sort of an open question at this point. He's, you know, can be somewhat difficult to to coexist with. Like that just seems like something that's it, it's become clearer that coexisting with him can be somewhat difficult at, at times. And as he gets older, is he going to be stuck in the, I'm still a superstar mode, or is he going to realize like, Oh, okay, I need to take a step back for a guy like Jimmy, for a guy like Anthony Davis or whatever. So like, those are the sorts of things that those guys are going to have to look at when they, if they want to sign with the Lakers. And then, you know, in terms of having enough sort of middling salary to send out, you know, I think the difference between that and like where the Celtics were, I think it was like last year when they were thinking about Kawhi Leonard or thinking about Paul George. You know, I think the, the biggest thing with them is that they've had so many higher draft picks in like Ingram and Ball. And the fact that the rookie scale has increased so much, like those guys are getting paid seven, eight million dollars a year. And they'll have another, you know, number four overall pick this year who's going to make, you know, six, seven, eight million dollars in his first year as well. And so, you know, it's. They have enough mid-tier salary, I think, to to put something together for Davis. But it's you know that's also going to be you know about how much they have to give up and all of that stuff. So you know it's a it's a very complicated summer for them coming up, and it's a very complicated summer for 
you know, the guys who might want to sign there, but don't know what the roster is going to look like. And, you know, how much do you trust Rob Polinka to like put a good roster around you? Like after what we've seen from him over the last year or so, like I wouldn't trust him to go get my dry cleaning, much less like put a real roster around me. So like, if I'm a superstar, I'm not sure that I you know necessarily want to play for a, a situation like the Lakers when, especially if you love LA and you want to live in, in Southern California, like the Clippers are so much better than the Lakers right? in every way, other than the fact that they don't have LeBron James, but if they're, they've got enough cap space to sign. Well, it'll two. be okay. They're getting literally either Kawhi or Kevin Durant. Like they're getting one of the two. I don't, I still think they're getting KD, but like they're getting one of the two, like that's, I, they're going to be fine. I think they're going to be fine too. They're going to be more than fine. Like they're going right. to be a championship contender next year because yep. they're going to get somebody and then they're going to be able to fill it out. And they're going to be very, They've got all these role players and a bunch of cap space, and they've got great management and great ownership and great coaching, all three of which the Lakers do not have. And like, well, hold there's on. They no... signed uh, Lionel Hollins today to their staff, so um, they're, they're so on now the upswing. they've got like 18 head coaches, and none of them are particularly inspiring. None of them are as good as Doc Rivers is, and like, you know, the Clippers are in so much. Like, if there was, there are. 10 teams I'd rather sign with than the Lakers. But if you really love LA or you really want to go to a big market, the Clippers are clearly the right choice for, for almost anybody. And, you know, they've got such a malleable roster that you can go there no matter what position you play and they're going to figure it out around you. And, and they've got such great management and ownership and coaching and just top to bottom, the culture and that organization is so much better than what's going on with the Lakers that it doesn't, it it would not surprise me if the Lakers end up having to trade for Anthony Davis or having to throw in extra assets for Anthony Davis because they just totally strike out in free agency. Yeah, um, the Davis stuff. I I just I don't know. I I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Um, who I would target though, and this is someone I haven't really seen talked about, is I would I would call the Heat. Um, the Heat are obviously sniffing around um, J.R. Smith's contract because of the weird verbiage of his pre-CBA change. Um, but because like he has 18 mil, but it's only like three guaranteed, and then they can stretch that three over the next couple of years and all that kind of stuff, and they can get a lot more cap space by just taking on his contract and this, that, and the other. But um, I would just call them and be like, what do you want for Josh Richardson? Because I I don't know what the point of Josh Richardson is in Miami right now. Um, I would call, like Dragic actually had a sneaky bad year for them. So I wouldn't really be that all the interested in him, but like if you could get Richardson and Winslow um, and just see, I mean, obviously you're not going to get bam and I don't, I'm sure they'll be like, can you please uh, also take Hassan Whiteside? I know you were interested a couple of years ago. Can you, uh, can you sniff around? That's also like you, we, we say Wiggins is the worst contract. Um, Hassan Whiteside right up there uh, folks. But um I don't know. Uh, that that might be my sneaky target if I'm the Lakers. And it seems like someone who would be really good next to LeBron is Josh Richardson and just kind of that Chris Middleton role next to a superstar like LeBron. I, I think he would be really good and people would actually start to recognize just how good of a NBA player he's become. Yeah, I mean, if certainly if they can pry Josh Richardson loose, I, if I'm Miami, I'm not giving up on him. Unless Even if it's gonna... Brandon Ingram? Like you can get Ingram and probably not Ball, but like the, what if well, you got number four in Ingram? Would you go at Richardson? Oh, well, sure. I mean, that's uh, then I don't do that as the Lakers, though. I mean, number four mm. and Ingram is way, way too much for Josh Richardson. I mean, I like Josh what Richardson. What if it's Richardson a... and is there anyone else that would sweeten the deal to make you do it for one and f- or for four and Ingram? 
for and Ingram for Richardson and anything. I don't think the light, the, the Heat have anything that's that interesting. Maybe oh, Bam waiters at eleven million dollars for three more years. <laughs> if they want, if they would, if they part with Bam and Richardson, then yeah. maybe you start to think about that. But even then, like Brandon Ingram is not like I would not be giving up on Brandon Ingram for a, a pair of those guys are not. I just don't think you can ever play Ingram and LeBron together in crunch time. I think Ingram's so young and you can just, you can, he's still in his development stage. He's going to be around way after LeBron is retired. Like LeBron is going to be on a beach with his kids hanging out way. way, He's going to be in the crowd watching his, watching his son play in the NBA. And Brandon Ingram is still going to be on the lake or he's still going to be in the NBA. And so I think if you're the Lakers, maybe you don't have to, I would still be thinking unless I can cash in on my young guys for a superstar like Anthony Davis, I'm not going to sell on, on some of these younger guys. Cause th- these guys are the, the long-term future of the franchise, unless of course you can cash in on them, but like, you know, before and Brandon Ingram or either one of those guys for Richardson and bam, like those, you know, those that's selling too low. I think on both number four and you know Richardson or and uh, Ingram, I, I just don't. I wouldn't do that particularly if I were the Lakers. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, I feel like we're going to end up with CP3 or something on the Lakers or something really. That dumb. would be, that would make sense. I don't think that the Rockets are going to sell on 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 Chris Paul. I just don't think that that's something that's going to happen for them. But it would it wouldn't surprise me if if the Lakers are sniffing around Chris Paul. Yeah, I don't know. I I just I think that they just have to be more realistic. They could have a good summer if they're realistic. Would you max out, Jimmy? If like you got done? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I probably would too. I would I would max out Jimmy Butler on pretty much whatever team. There are a few teams like who are rebuilding or who are sort of beginning their ascent that it doesn't make a ton of sense. But if I'm trying to compete next year and I've got a team that I think can compete next year, I think he's he's his playoff defense and his playoff shot making is is worth the you know the extra cost that it comes with you know obviously maxing out a a guy who's a little bit older and can be a little bit of a prickly personality you know i i don't i don't mind the fiery guys as much as some other people do but of course there's a line to how fiery can you be before you're a detriment he sort of toes that line on a daily basis so it's it's if if there are some difficulties lebron would love it yeah i think lebron could LeBron and he would get along from a competitiveness perspective. I think they would, you know, they would fire, you know, sort of be fire and ice. And obviously Jimmy's very in your face and LeBron's very passive aggressive and will just sort of stop shooting the ball or or call you out on Instagram, (laughs) you know? And yeah, it would be very similar to, to like LeBron and Draymond. And I think that would be something that would, that would be a partnership that would work super well, obviously, because those guys are the two smartest players in the league. So they would just, they would, I think they would get along from just an intellectual standpoint, those two guys. So I would, I would max out Jimmy if I were the Lakers or if I were Philadelphia, I would, I would max him to keep him. And so, you know, I think he's probably going to stick around Philly because they're going to give him the five-year max and, and he'll be happy to sign that at his age. So, you know, that's where I think that'll that's go. Whether... Great for Philly, Like you said, like that's still a good move for Philly because if Kawhi leaves, yeah. they should be considered the favorites in the East next year. Well, I mean, Milwaukee is still going to be Milwaukee. Assuming they bring back Chris Middleton, they still yeah. have Giannis. Giannis is going to get better. Giannis has never not gotten better from summer to summer. You know, whether Ben Simmons can follow in that in his footsteps and sort of 
be either more, more, you know, more like Giannis or, you know, God forbid, get a, get a jump shot. Um, you know, how much is Embiid going to improve? Can you count on another, uh, another healthy year from Joel Embiid mostly like that's, you know, that's always a dicey proposition. I think if Kawhi leaves and goes to like the Clippers, you know, goes out West for, for whatever reason, like, I think that's, I think Milwaukee has to be the favorite. They were so much better than Philly this year. Giannis is going to get one step better. If they can bring back the band, Brogdon, Middleton, Lopez, like they're going to be, they should be clearly the favorites in the East to me. I think they missed the, missed the moment. This, this is it. Um, I, I think I, I, I just, I would be surprised if Milwaukee ever gets there. I think it's about to get really bad really soon in the next couple of years um, for Milwaukee, yeah, maybe. unfortunately. Um, I don't know. I, I think sometimes the small markets, Matt Moore had a really good tweet about this where we see this story over and over again. Small market does just about everything the right way. Um, they develop a superstar. The superstar gets really close. They don't get there. They get swatted down by LeBron or whoever. And then um, that superstar leaves and they have to start all over. Um, I, I yeah. Don't know. I mean, we saw that with Durant in Oklahoma yep. City. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a different, that's a, it's, it's a brutal, difficult thing. That's what happens. You have, yeah. Yeah, you. I mean, obviously, like Oklahoma City had many, many chances with with Durant. So, like, it's hard to blame him for for the chance. Like, they made the finals in 2012, and then had four more years after that where they couldn't get back there. So, like, it's not necessarily like they only had the one chance, and then he left in 2013. Like, you know, they they had their chances with him, and and you know, hopefully, Milwaukee will have another chance next year, and that'll be their their second one. And then, of course, you know. Giannis will be up for the the designated veteran uh, player extension, and obviously he can get that that super max if he wants it. Then he'll stay there for the you know the rest of his career probably. If not, then uh, then we'll have a an Anthony Davis like discussion about Giannis next year. Well, it should be interesting to see what happens, Jeff. It's always a pleasure talking NBA with you, man. Um, what can we look out for you? I know we talked at the top of the show about uh, your new rankings that got released, but we, I check out um, Early Bird Rights every day. But how uh, is there anything specifically uh, that we should be looking out for on that front uh, over the course of the next week? Yeah, I mean, you can uh, you can always find my work over at Early Bird Rights. Pretty much everything goes up there in one form or another. If I write it elsewhere, then I'll link to it on Early Bird Rights. So you know, pretty much that's that's the way to go. If you want to follow me on Twitter at JG Siegel at Early Bird Rights this week, we've got a bunch of uh, uh, off-season previews coming. Houston is tomorrow, and then I think it's San Antonio, and then Miami. I've got the schedule somewhere, but uh, I think that's the the order of the next three. But those are coming out literally every day in June at uh, at noon Eastern. There's a a new off-season preview uh, coming for for a team, and then on Tuesdays and Fridays, except for the week of the draft. There are going to be positional rankings, like we talked about with the point guards that went up today, which is June 4th, as we're recording this. Uh, Another one, the combos will go up on June 7th, I believe, is Friday, if I'm adding my my days correctly. So, And then we'll have Tuesday, Friday next week is the the wings and the power forwards, and are the wings and the forwards. Forwards are sort of guys who can play both the three and the four. And then we'll take a week off for the draft. I'll have my draft board the Tuesday of of draft week, you know, two days before the draft. Then the next week we'll have the stretch and anchors, the two big man positions, right as we lead up into free agency. So that's everything on early bird rights. And then I've got my draft stuff going up for the most part over at Peachtree Hoops, but I'll link to that at early bird rights as well. And then my full draft board, of course, will go up two days before the draft. So it's it's a busy time of year, but uh, you can follow me on Twitter, follow early bird rights, and and you know that's where uh, all my stuff will go up. 
Jeff, keep up the great work, man, and we will talk basketball again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, Be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Thank you for your support and we'll be back another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.